Oh my gosh, Maddie. So, you know, we ask every week for um, conversation in this musical theater educators community. Um, we have people email us at uh, podcast at gmail.com. And sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. And some, you know, in Instagram messages and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but we got a letter that I don't know. It meant a lot to both of us. Like we're, and we've been talking about it uh, and I thought it might be nice to, to share it with, with our listeners uh, because it, it meant so much to us. Maybe, you know, we are trying to build a community of sharing and, and I don't know. Do you, so it's first, it says, Hey, Maddie and Kikau. First, I want to thank you both for a terrific and memorable MTEA conference. This was my first year and I had un believably grateful for the experience. I have been telling my fellow teachers and grad school cohort that they need to be part of this remarkable organization. The inspiration I received from the past MTEA conference has been furthered and compounded by the Carefully Taught podcast, which I have been binging these past few weeks as I work on my thesis. The guests you have are absolutely incredible, and the insight has been unreal. Some of my favorite interviews have been with Chris Peterson, Aaron J. Albano, Caitlin Hopkins, Sally Kate Holmes, Amanda Flynn, and Christy Cates. In fact, Kate's recommendation, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which so far is a great musical theater history text, and Aaron Albano's Ensemble and Tony Telecast podcast have become additional sources for my thesis project. I have also enjoyed getting to know other MTEA members and their work through your podcast. Like Kikau, I also found the Legally Blonde saga riveting, not to mention I sing the podcast theme song before and after each show. It is catchy. Oh, and then he says, it's so catchy and I love it. Maddie, at the MTEA conference, you said our students are changing faster than our pedagogy. And I got chills. What an epiphany. That is so true. I feel like the sentiment is echoed throughout the episodes of Carefully Taught. I love when Caitlin Hopkins said, I don't think we can change the systemic racism in the industry until we change the pedagogy. I completely agree and am inspired by you all. Thank you both for sharing your time and valuable connections and service of like-minded educators. In addition to your hard work and long days in higher education administration, the classroom and on the stage, I appreciate your creating space and giving others access through this free broadcast platform. I commend you both. I've been recommending your podcast to other teachers and students and fortunately have been able to engage my colleagues in the conversations you and your guests have started. Your podcast is an exceptional resource for musical educators. Please keep doing the good work, asking the tough and imperative questions, and sharing your vital collaborative conversations. Then he says, the recommendations are my favorite. I'll be reading, listening, and consuming all this material for years to come. In the words of Caitlin Hopkins on your podcast, here's to serving our students and communities through storytelling. Wishing you both all the best, Ben Lundy. It's amazing. It's amazing. Thank you, Ben. That was a very nice, very nice (laughs) to hear. I guess we got to keep doing it. We've got to keep doing it. And I, I think that the the sentiment that is in this message can absolutely be seen today and heard today in uh, our conversation with the amazing Vicki Bussert from Baldwin Wallace.
So when I say that today's guest is a titan of the musical theater educators landscape, I, that might be an understatement. Um, what Vicki Bussert has done at Baldwin Wallace in her time there has been nothing short of amazing. There is literally, regardless of what metric one uses to determine like the the, the success of a program, uh, Baldwin Wallace is successful on every single level. Um, and e the easiest of which is to look around at the current Broadway landscape and see that there's quite literally a Baldwin Wallace alum in every show on Broadway. Um, I have had the luxury of getting to know Vicki in my former capacity as the artistic director of the Clinton Area Showboat Theater, where she and I got a lot of one-on-one -on -one time sitting in auditions together. And one thing that I will say about Vicki is that she cares about her students in a way that is inspiring. Um, so Vicki, welcome to Carefully Taught Teaching Musical Theater with Maddie and Kikau. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for asking me. You bet. Thank you for doing it. So I think I, I want to start with just a general question that you and I talked a little bit about the last time we were together, which was, you know, how many years has it been at Baldwin Wallace now? I am uh, in the middle of my 26th year. Okay, so 26 years ago, when you took this job as the musical theater coordinator at this little private school in Ohio, did you ever think that what you have done was possible? And did you think you'd be doing it 26 years later? You know, it's such a good question. Um, the man who hired me left after my first year. But when he hired me, he said, we want you to make this the most successful program you can imagine. And that to me just like clicked with me. And so I was like, okay, let me use everything I have learned in my professional directing career and from my MFA in directing. And let me see if I can actually create a, a program that will produce working actors. Because I was at that point before I started teaching, the year before I started teaching, I was out of town 10 and a half months. I had done 12 productions and Honestly, I was hitting a, a state of burnout that had me starting to think about, gee, I wonder what else I might like to do. Because going from theater to theater to theater, from little dark apartments to another little dark apartment, you know, um, was it, it was a lot of fun, but that was my 10th year of working as a professional director around the country. And I was so, um, you know, I love casting. My first year out of grad school, I was the casting director in film and TV. So it's something I really love doing and, and something that that year of working as a casting director, I think of that as my extra year of grad school and literally getting a degree in casting because I saw about 10,000 auditions in that one year. And what I noticed as I was casting productions, we'd always cast out of New York because that's where you'd have the biggest conglomerations of theaters or of uh, actors. And I, I kept looking at like the people who were getting called back and, and the people who weren't. And I was aware from their resumes, you know, they came from excellent programs. And I thought, I wonder if I could create a program and an eight semester sequence over four years that would really have the skill set demanded by the industry. And I, I always say to potential students, you know, I'm 
I did not study the pedagogy of teaching theater. Um, I, you know, my degree's in directing and it was to be a director, not to teach directing. So I was very practical about the way I went about structuring a program. And Baldwin Wallace said, you can create whatever you want because what we've had hasn't worked. And literally they said, we're going to give this one more shot. So you can take this job and if it works great, and if it doesn't, we're not going to have a music theater program. And I was like, okay, because it would allow me to stay in one place. And I got a plant and I got a dog and it was like, well, let's see what I can put together. What I walked into was a senior class of five students two juniors, the entire junior class was two people and four sophomores. And they had accepted 10 incoming freshmen. Um, and I asked, well, so what, um, what was the audition process for students to get in? And they said, well, they, they make up their own dances. And I was like, you know what? You're not paying me enough money for that. So we're going to do a dance call instead. Um, but I, I thought I'm just going to put everything I've learned uh, as a working professional director to work. I was doing this crazy thing at the time. Um, Gerald Friedman, who was my mentor, had just left Great Lakes Theater. I had been with Great Lakes for 10 years as his associate. And they asked me if I would co-artistic direct for an interim for one year. So my very first year of teaching, I was also interim artistic director, co-artistic director with John Azell, an amazing designer. And so the very first thing I did is I started using my students as understudies professionally and really started this bridge building in between academia and the professional world. And that is one of the things that has been critical to me in how I train uh, our students is knowing that, you know, we are responsible for turning up the next generation of young artists. And it's not just about technique and craft. Of course, that's incredibly important, but it's also how does one behave in the professional world? What are the expectations of the professional world? And because I had that opportunity with Great Lakes and I continue to be resident director for them in Idaho Shakespeare and Lake Tahoe Shakespeare, I really use those opportunities to educate the students during their four years. So it's kind of this parallel path of classroom work, performance work on and off campus, as well as working in a professional environment. So really at the end of those four years, they are ready to be hired by anyone professionally. It's not a big deal for them to be hired a month after graduation to do a national tour or to go right to Broadway because that's how we've been operating over their four years. So I get to be the bad guy for those four years. You know, somebody was just saying to me, um, it's like three or four years after graduation. That's when I start getting the emails of, well, now I understand. Thank you. <laughs> Rarely while they're here, you know, because that, um, that leap between high school theater and college is huge. 
And if the goal, and my goal really is not for my students to immediately go to grad school. I'm all for grad school in the future, but we're a young person's profession. And, you know, graduating ready to work is a critical element for me because I know as a working director what that will mean. So that also means that I'm building professional, you know, relationship with agents and casting directors all at the same time that they are training. So it's kind of this, you know, combo platter of normal, uh, you know, education along with professional education. This is so exciting. And you've grown this program over all these years and I guess the question, you know, I'm I'm piqued by the idea of the skill set demanded by the industry in an industry that has shifted and changed and evolved. So I'm wondering how your program has evolved and changed over the years, if at all. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we have been a longtime member of NAMFT, the National Alliance for Musical Theater. So we have often been involved with developing new musicals, as well as I think it is my responsibility to stay cutting edge with what the demands are. I often say that if I was teaching today what I taught five years ago, my students wouldn't work. So, you know, as soon as Hamilton appeared on the scene, we changed our dance curriculum to offer two levels of hip hop. We're in constant, constant flow, because unlike the vocal performance, you know, um, program where a lot of their rep is classical, uh, we can look at what's on Broadway and what's on national tours and know that, yes, absolutely golden age needs to be a part of people's education. But if that's all they're learning, it's going to be a very small market for them, you know, in order for them to work. And really, that's really important to me. Students are paying way too much money for four years of school to graduate without a toolbox that allows them different areas in which to be able to work. So I feel that's my responsibility to really stay cutting edge in terms of what is the skill set demanded. Uh, Vicki, you talked about um, teaching students how to behave and interact uh, in the professional world. And, and something that has always struck me uh, as, as, a, as somebody who ran a small professional theater and I would audition and often cast your students is just how professional they were, not just in the rehearsal room, but through the contract negotiation conversation or you know receiving an offer and the, the way that they're on the phone and how they interact with me when I would be making them an offer. And I, I just, I'm curious, how do you teach that in a class? Like to me, that's, I, I'm, I, that is that I would love to hear your strategy there because whatever you're doing really, really works. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm just so constantly impressed with even the ones that turn me down. <laughs> they, do <it laughs> such a, they do it in such a respectful, professional way. 
Well, you know, I did all the contract negotiations for Great Lakes for 10 years. So when it comes to negotiating contracts, I talk them through our sophomore audition class. We start with we're prepping for summer stock auditions. You know, Maddie, I consider you part of my honorary faculty because doing summer stock I think is really important. Um, it's a part of old world musical theater. And I think it's a very healthy part of our students' life over these four years. I like that they are put in situations where they have to practice their craft on much more condensed timelines than they do in school. And I like that they're working with a group of people, most of whom they will not know. So they're developing those skills of maybe I don't agree with everybody, but I can learn how to respect everybody. And we talk the first week about contract negotiations. What, you know, what does that mean? Um, what does, what is a professional persona? And what is the difference between your professional persona, meaning how you want to be seen by the industry, how does that differ from you in your dorm room? Let's get those things separated out um, so that you get to decide how you want to be seen in the industry. And you are practicing that from summer stock audition number one. And we do 10 of those a year. We're so fortunate that the theaters will come to campus. So we make it, you know, particularly now that Midwest don't exist anymore, um, we make it as um, financially uh, possible for our students. I'm not a fan of students having to pay to audition. Um, I'm not a fan of my students having to pay for anything outside of school. I think they're paying enough. So that's another thing that I think is important. They get to then practice who they want to be during summer stock. And I'm telling you, Maddie, it is when they come back from those summers it's like they have a list of these are the things I need to get better at doing. And you see them to a whole new approach in dance classes, a whole, you know, I need to extend my range by these notes. I need to be. So instead of us saying you really should work on this, they come back saying I need this and that and that. And it's like, OK, so junior year is very different. Oh my gosh, so exciting. I've always thought, you know, as a as a director myself, the I see production being so curricular, right? Like every aspect of it, the audition process, the rehearsal process, even uh, some sort of run of the show inside of the of academia is um an opportunity um to teach. There's something kind of teachable. Um I'm as a director yourself, how do you navigate those sometimes lessons that might come up is it <laughs> yeah i'm just just curious what your approach is to that <clears throat> you know I, when i was in grad school at northwestern i assisted frank galati and i can remember um a production we were doing and, and at that point he wasn't the frank galati that everybody knew you know and he had adapted nabokov's invitation to a beheading which was like an epic thing to decide to adapt into a theatrical piece. And we had a really bad dress rehearsal. 
And I think I remember it being like 1 a.m. And we were all out in the theater lobby and he was giving us notes and somebody yawned without covering their mouth. And, you know, people were bored. And I remember him stopping everything and saying, you all need to understand if you have 30 seconds on a stage, that is an honor. You are never to take a second you are given on a stage for granted ever. And, you know, John Cameron Mitchell was one of the students. I mean, I I think all of us sitting there have carried that 1 a.m. lecture with us. I would like to think I try to impart the same sort of, um, we are so lucky to get to do this. And it is through the arts, particularly through musical theater, that we are able in our culture to develop empathy, um, to work out issues that maybe we can't discuss with our neighbor, but we can watch it played out on stage um, and then begin some conversations so that what we do isn't just entertainment. And I think that's another shift from a lot of high school into college in terms of this isn't just you're not just here because everybody said you were the best Harold Hill they'd ever seen and you should be on Broadway. You're here because you can make a difference in our society. So you have to take it seriously. Starting with train your bladder to go 90 minutes. You know, I mean, the little things. You can't make it through 90 minutes of a rehearsal and a 10 minute break. What if the first act is over 90 minutes? You learn how to behave and what is going to be expected and required. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's the, the basic overview is piece by piece, these things need to be laid in. Another one of the things I say, because often I hear we... Um, there is no sort of you have to wait a certain number of years before you can be cast. Everybody is required to audition. So even if you're not cast, you are auditioning over and over again. And uh, if I do cast a freshman, which I have every year, they tend to be the ones who don't know how to take notes. Uh, notes to them sound like they're being criticized. And I remember a, a wonderful equity actor, an older actor who was watching, um, it was our Christmas Carol downtown here at Great Lakes, was watching some of the younger actors struggle with getting notes. And he turned to the company and he, and he said, hey, everybody, do you know how to spell notes? You spell it H-E-L-P. And I went, oh. So from that point on, what what we get into our heads is when you get a note, you say, thank you, just like you would if somebody helped you do something. And what that does for your mindset instead of, oh, no, I'm getting so many notes. They think I'm terrible. It's like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not what notes are. We're all on the same side. So I think it's learning those things that just have never been discussed. It's not even part of their mindset, you know, coming from high school. Vicki, um, 
when so a couple of years ago uh, was well, I guess it was two two conferences ago at the MTEA conference, I was able to talk you into being on a panel that was discussing how virtual musical theater was going and we were giving each other tips and tricks and whatnot. And afterwards, uh, one of the members reached out to me directly and was like, I can't believe you got Vicky Bussert on that panel. She's like my idol. And I was like, really? She's Vicky. I mean, I, I know you in a very different way because of our relationship and whatnot. And, and I was like, tell me a little bit about this. And this is a young, I'm not gonna say her name, but she's listening and she knows who she is. Um, but she, uh, you know, she's a young musical theater educator and felt like when she was coming up through the ranks, there weren't a lot of strong women leaders like you. Um, and she really exp expressed to me that she saw you as a trailblazer for women musical theater educators who uh, now there are more of still not enough. But um, I'm curious if if you could speak to that person and give give them uh, some advice as to being being somebody who identifies as a woman in a, this male dominated field education and musical theater like how did you how did you do it what what does she need to know what what wisdom could you give to her wow well first of all how incredibly kind um you know when when i was 7 i wanted to play the cello and I was told, well, you can't because you're a woman and you would have to put that between your legs. And, uh, you know, a lady doesn't do that. So, of course, I became an expert cellist. I still have my cello right over here. I, I tend to, um, you know, tell me I can't do something. And I am abs I was turned down by Northwestern the first time I applied to the directing program. And I'm like, Excellent. See you next year. Um, my undergrad school, the first one I went to was run by a, a male uh, director and he right to my face said, well, you can't, you can't take directing. Women don't direct. And he wasn't trying to be mean at that time. I mean, I've been around a while. At that time, there were no women to point to, to say, look, you can do this. So my solution to that was transferring to an all-women's college because I thought my odds just went up. Um, so what I would say to that person, if they're listening, is keep going. You know, absolutely keep going and use what you're learning about the inequities to reach out. We have a lot more inequities um, and we are trying to, we, we need to open, we need to make our profession more and more equitable. And that is in reaching to other people of whether it's a difference in race, a difference in uh, how someone identifies. It is so important, I think, uh, it's given me a slight in. I certainly don't have the same um, challenges that so many people have, but I have a real desire to help people who have not had the advantages of, you know, having the scholarships thrown at them or having uh, a multitude of projects available. You, you all, I mean, you're both directors. 
you know you can't teach directing from a book. It's That isn't how you learn. You've got to be in the room and you've got to be allowed to make mistakes. And you have to learn how to work individually, actor by actor. And you can only do that if you're given the opportunity to be in those rooms. And sometimes you have to make those rooms. Um, But I think that's the thing to know that certainly the industry is far more open um, for people to try things. And don't be afraid to, you know, really make your own projects. I'm 100% for that. I think everybody who ever graduated from Northwestern's grad school was going to start a small off-loop theater, you know, all of these theaters that run for two years. But you end up doing these crazy, inventive productions that feed your creativity as you actually are hired for something that has a budget. You know, when, when during COVID... The one thing that I said to my my uh, colleague, Matt Webb, our music director, was we are not going to sit this out. I There is no way, um, even if we are looking at screens, we are going to create things. We are we have to create things. So we did this crazy spring awakening that we filmed the primarily outdoors. Uh, you know, I have lived in this city for 20 years and I found places to film that I never knew existed. I had never in my life directed for a film. Frank Galati told me I should go into it. I had no interest whatsoever in it. Before our first filming day outside, I literally had to go to YouTube and look up how do you start filming? Like, what does the director say to begin filming? Because I was like, what do I do? So I was like, okay, um, stand by, uh, action. It was like, and then I do this hand signal. I was like, oh, I'm a film director now. It was insane, but we created something and nobody got COVID. We filmed a few things indoors in the theater. And the rule that the school gave us was you can only be in that space for 20 minutes at a time. So we would be in there. They'd time us 20 minutes. We'd have to go stand out in the parking lot for 30 minutes for the air to recirculate. Then we would go back in for 20 minutes. We, I look back on this now and I go, I guess we could do it again, but it seems so crazy now. But then it was like, we have got to keep these students we have to keep the artistic part of them going. And then we partnered with NAMT and they had had, um, they had the same idea that they had to keep writers writing over COVID. So they did a competition for 15 minute musicals. I happened to be on the adjudicators for that. And I chose five of those 15 minute musicals and we produced them as 15 minute online musicals. So not, and we were able to hire five different directors. So it's like, whatever the challenge is, um, look at it as an opportunity. What is it there that you can learn from? You know, that's, that's the thing. Don't let anybody give you a hard and fast no. We're creators. There is no hard and fast no. I love that um, the story about Spring Awakening, and it must feel so great to now be back in the room to, to to kind of look at that as a memory. Like, remember when that happened? And 
and to almost hold it in our in our minds and our hearts, but also to kind of get back to it. Um, do you find yourself uh, sort of feeling the same way? Like, are you in production? Does it feel good to to be doing the things that we wanted to do back then? It it was amazing. I mean, coming back into the room without masks, you know, we still have our air purifiers, but it was like being a, I mean, my earliest memory of directing is like as an eight-year-old putting up a blanket that was, that was the curtain and I would direct the neighborhood kids. I literally felt like that again. But you know, the other thing, Kikau, is I think about um, what is that spring awakening going to mean to the generation who never went through COVID? And, you know, like they can look at this and go, they all have masks on, what are they, you know, it's, it's so, it, it documents a time that we are forgetting very quickly. That is going to be really interesting um, in the future when people look back at the things that were created, because there was an outburst of creativity, but oh my God, for somebody who is not about directing film, you know, I love being back in the room. I truly, truly do. I just want to um, jump on the idea of these classes that have each experienced something different, right? Our current junior class maybe didn't quite finish uh, high school, and then one year was online, the second year was in masks, and then here we are. Um, so I guess I'm curious to know, like, you know, just like your students, my students, Matt, Maddie's students, there's, there's a tenacity in that group. And then there's also something that's different as we're looking at and meeting prospective students. So there's just a different kind of vibe and energy. I, I'm just as as all of our uh, uh, audition cycles are somewhat coming to a, an end, I'm curious to know um, if you have any insight about the the recruitment process or even that that energy thing I'm talking about along the classes. Well, you know, one of the most important things about theater, I think, in high school is the socialization aspect of it. And so there are high schoolers who missed an entire year of what we learned by being in theater with other people in the room. I'm so I would say this year's auditions definitely felt different than last year's. I could really feel it. Um, this year's it's starting to rotate back to normal. Um, it, it feels like a game of catch up, you know, I mean, my juniors, when they were freshmen, they were freshmen on campus, but the majority of their classes were on zoom. So it's interesting to watch each one of these classes, depending on when that COVID year hit them. And it's so funny because as freshmen, they were delighted to be in a dorm. They were just like, oh, we're college students in a dorm. Whereas the upperclassmen really understood what they had lost and going from, wait, we were all in rooms together and now we're mostly on Zoom. And you could feel that sense of loss in those in those classes. So that's why trying to make sure there were creative things available became so important. We also do a lot of, we do a jazz concert in a bar 
Of course, there were no bars open. Um, one of the things I like to program for our classes is performing in different venues around the city, just so that, you know, something happens to a student when you take them off campus, losing all of that was hard. So we, we definitely tried to be creative about offerings that we could do, but, um, it, it it will be interesting to see, I'd say the graduates from last year and the year before, I was just saying, you know, um, we, we've just put our New York showcase together and it was three years ago. We had just done the final rehearsal before spring break. We had literally finished it with like five minutes to go. And it's like, okay, after spring break, we'll start the runs. And literally nobody ever came back. And I'm the only person who saw that showcase. And I was like, oh my God, it was so special. But we still found a way to showcase our students by digging through all of this video we had of them, of productions, concerts, bar singing. So we still put together a, you know, a, a showcase to represent them. But who would have thought? You know, I it's even now it's becoming so unthinkable. Like, how did we all soldier through this? It was a crazy time, that is for sure. I'm wondering, you were talking a little bit about your um your experience in auditions, auditioning uh, prospective students the past couple of years and how it's shifted. One of the things that has always struck me about you and, and watching your students and, and, and watching them develop is you must be a master recruiter. Like you, you really, I don't know how you do it. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about like the recruitment process for prospective students and, and what you're looking for in students at auditions. Um, because I mean, you bat damn near a thousand. I don't know how you do it. Well, you know, I, I'm, I, let me just say, I don't pre-screen and I don't pre-screen. Um, I, I don't want to take away the, there's an equity part of that as well, but for me, watching somebody in a video that was filmed in August has so little to do with who they are, you know, six months later, particularly at that age. And I, I'm not only fine, I enjoy being in the room with actors. So I make sure that, you know, we do 14 audition days. We audition in New York, Florida, Texas, and I do right now too, and I may increase it, Zoom audition days so that somebody who can't afford to make an in-person audition, that's fine. If somebody can't afford to pay an audition fee, that's fine. I don't care. I just want to see the person in person, even if it's in person on Zoom, um, I want to experience what that young artist has to bring in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Because the other thing with so many pre-screens and, and not to criticize them, and I know that there are, uh, there are schools that are very adept in using those and it cuts down the number of people that they have to see live. And I have all the respect for that. It just doesn't play into, well, let me back that up. Let me just say that I am grateful for the opportunity to handpick students and 
I, I, I did try pre-screening the first year accepted was out there. You know, they knocked on the door and said, will you try this? And I did. And so I did this big cut and, you know, and then I taught a master class. And I remember this, uh, this young woman got up and sang and I was like, oh my God, you're amazing. Why are you auditioning for me? And she said, you cut me. And I went, never again, never again. That was all I literally, that one person, I was like, what a mistake. And I was like, well, you're uncut. Please audition for me. Um, But I think part of it is Gosh, Manny, I don't, you know, in terms of recruitment, we just try to be really transparent about the program. So we try to make sure there's a lot of information online. Um, we do ask our grads to list if they if they would consider listing Baldwin Wallace in their bios. We know that that's helpful. Our students tend to be incredible ambassadors for the program and are so willing to talk to people. So we also, because our auditions are open, like it's anybody can sign up for an audition. We open auditions the first week in August and when they're filled, they're filled. And that I'd rather kind of say, if you want to audition, here are a myriad of opportunities to do that. I love that, Vicki. And, and, you know, one of the things you and I've spoken a little bit about, but then I've also witnessed is how increasingly diverse your student body population is. Um, and I, and, and I, I wonder, I mean, that's obviously something that is important to you. I know that as, as you, from your, our conversations, but um, surely removing some of the gatekeeping that is involved in, in the costs and the, and different things has got to be helpful. It's um, so important. It's so, I mean, when I came to Baldwin Wallace, it was an all white program and I did not say this aloud, but in my head, my first, my first memory of Baldwin Wallace was looking at this all white program and thinking, this is so boring. What a boring, like everybody looks the same. This is not, it wasn't the theater I was brought up with and it wasn't the theater that interested me. So I immediately accepted our first black student, my very first year of auditioning. But you know, Maddie, when you want to talk numbers, my very first audition day on campus, I had four people audition and I accepted 50%. <laughs> so I accepted two of the people of the four. Um, and it just, you know, obviously it grew and grew, but you just keep doing the work is, is the thing. And, and the program ultimately, uh, speaks for itself. My, my very first year, I said to the five seniors, we are going to go to New York. We're going to do a senior showcase. They had never even heard of that. And so I rented an audition, well, a, a rehearsal room on 45th Street. I uh, invited the agents that I knew. Um, I, one agent showed up. There were 20 folding chairs. My mom's alumni group from Ohio State happened to be in town. <laughs> so they filled 10 chairs. You know, it was, I look back and I think, oh my God, it was a 20 minute showcase. And we signed our first student. 
And that was kind of what I needed to go. All right, we're going to keep it. So this year it's our 25th showcase. It's not our 26th because the year I had two juniors, I just, I said, you guys could join the next showcase, but I can't do a showcase with just two people. But um, yeah, I think it's all a part of, you know, if it works and you see grads who are working, then that attracts more. But honestly, the first time that I did do that senior showcase and I would reach out I reached out to agents that I had negotiated with before. And I said, um, you know, I'm now at Baldwin Wallace. We're going to do a senior showcase. And I remember one agent said to me, what's a Baldwin Wallace? As if it was a thing, you know, <laughs> and it's like, okay. Nobody had heard of the school ever in New York. So and now, was- and now they all know. They all know. They know it now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you know, that that's that was a long process. You know, this is somewhat related, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts as a as a director, as a as a collaborator. What do you look for, right? As you're putting these teams together, as you're as you are, I'm sure bringing lighting designers that you love working with, working with over the years. What are those qualities in in the artists and artisans that you love that you're like, oh, I love it when blank. You know what? It's probably the same as putting together a freshman class. I love people who want to play. I feel like my eight-year-old self did things pretty much the way that I do them now. I just want people who'll get in the sandbox and play. Um, And I, I do think you get to a point where you have kind of this extended designer family and choreographer family. And, you know, in terms of the students, it's so strange. People will be like, well, how do you know? All I can say is that year of casting, you get, you develop your eye in a way and you recognize your people, like people who come in with their own take on something. That is so exciting as opposed to people with perfect technique and everything's aligned and, uh, but there's nothing happening. And um, I think it was drilled into me. I, I have been so lucky to assist some pretty great directors in the industry. And I can remember Jerry Friedman, you know, just being like, there's nothing happening. There's nothing. Bullshit. Jack Lee would be like, bullshit, bullshit. That isn't real, you know? And so those people who come in and just like, this is who I am and this is my take on it. And I, I just eat that up. That's like, oh, come play, you know, let's let's get in there. But I think same thing with designers to me. Yeah. Vicky, one of the things that, um, so you're known as, as you're tough, like you're, you're a tough, you're, you're a tough one. But then one of the things that you shared with me the last time that I was in uh, at Baldwin Wallace was uh, just how deeply emotional you get watching your students um, succeed. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's something you're comfortable talking about. We can cut this part out if you're not, um, because it is pretty personal, but uh, I, I was struck by that 
because I knew that you cared. I knew that you were invested, but it, it was striking to me to hear you talk about just how emotional you get sitting in the audience and seeing your students it's on stage. It's so moving to me. But you know, Maddie, the other thing is what is defined as tough is literally saying, you know, your bladder has to make it 90 minutes. That's tough. You know, it's like um, behavior in a, covering your mouth when you yawn, you know. So the, the definition of tough, although I will say I would much prefer that students make the mistakes over the four years with me and not on their first professional job where it can actually do damage. But, you know, I like next Sunday, I'm seeing Marcus Martin, who was one of those who graduated um, the COVID year, so never got a real showcase. And... He's the youngest genie they've ever had in Aladdin, the genie on the national tour. And I'm going to see him. I saw his billboard today downtown because I was downtown. And already I just start losing it. You know, when Kyle Jean-Baptiste, it's still, uh, that's never going to go away. Um, Too young, you know, Um, the first Black Jean Valjean on Broadway and the youngest ever, 21 years old, Jean Valjean. Um, but his legacy is really important to me. And um, Cameron McIntosh started uh, a scholarship in Kyle's name that we give out to one Black actor every four years. And Marcus was the first recipient. So and um, Kyle was Marcus's tour guide when Marcus came and looked at Baldwin Wallace. So it's, you know, I know Kyle is with me. I feel extremely responsible um, for his legacy. At his funeral, his, um, his agent, Ben Sands, who is a dear, dear friend, uh, gave, was it Ben or what? I think it was Ben who gave me, um, you know, the, the, the nameplate that they put out in the lobby. They had two for Kyle and they gave me one of them. So that's right over my desk as is, um, the picture we took. I always take Polaroids of the students when the audition, because that's how I was brought up in casting. It's like, don't ever believe the headshot. So we take the Polaroid of how you look that day. And of course, Kyle, decided to look goofy in his Polaroid. So I've got that right up on my mirror in the office as well. So, yeah, you know, I think we are over a third BIPOC students, Black and BIPOC students in our program. And I will not leave until we're at 50%. Not that I'm thinking of leaving because I'm not. But um, I, I, it's very important. Um, I understand we're probably the second uh, most diverse uh, program in the country, which for a tiny town in Ohio is something, again, that I'm very, I'm very proud of and I'm very dedicated to. I just think it's important. Almost every one of my Black students from the past five years is working. You know, it's, if I can help bridge between academia and the professional world, which is one of the things that I really think is a calling for me is creating that bridge. 
I don't like my students graduating and going, so now what? Um, I really like knowing that there's a team member who is an agent or a manager who is ready to take over and help those students. That is so incredible. Um, I'd love, I, I know we're somewhat nearing the end of our time together. So we're about to ask about your uh, recommendation for our listeners. I'm also interested in hearing sort of what you see next, right? What you see next with your, your program, with things. So curious, maybe answer that one first. What's next? What's what what is evolving and then um and then what your recommendation is for us well i think the next step in equity is something we're all handling which is our trans students and our non-binary students uh we accepted our first trans student a couple of years ago he's doing fantastically he's actually going to be doing a show in new york this summer um sorry maddie <laughs> Um, because he was going to be, Maddie had cast him this summer. Um, And I think I want to be on the front lines of where's our industry going in terms of male identified, female identified, non-binary. What are those, what we have considered to be hard and fast rules and how are we changing those? And I want, and I certainly have students who are right there wanting that and I want to help make that happen. So that's my new kind of um, project is seeing, well, who is what agents are willing to get um, us, you know, actors in the room non-traditionally. Um, what casting people are willing to do that, what creative teams are willing to consider that. So I've been having those conversations. I've started with agent friends and casting directors and just starting to collect the information so that I can figure out how best to prepare students. I, You know, it's what I don't want to happen because again, college is too expensive. I don't want to say, absolutely, you are male identified or you're non-binary and you want to be the first alphabet. Let's really look at what that means. Like, let's look at it from the business perspective. Um, And I had a great conversation with somebody, a creative on Wicked, and that's a very welcoming community in terms of many, uh, much of the casting. But you get to alphabet and we get into a different area in terms of, well, what does it cost to reorchestrate? Do we bypass these female identified actors who can sing it in the key, who are fantastic, do just because, you know, what is it that you can bring that is special for that? And that's the thing that I can come back and challenge my students who want to break down those walls, um, as well as what are the shows that are already doing that? So it's, I think, you know, it. this is new new grounds for all of us. And and I want to be a part of helping those students who want to break down those walls. I want to help them do it. But I also want to make sure that they can support themselves financially. 
Thanks, Vicky. So we are at that point, as as Kikau gave you the heads up, where we always end our episodes by having our guests um, give us a, a recommended resource or some sort of recommendation to our listeners who've made it this far. Although I think everybody's probably made it this far for for this one. Um, so what what did you bring for us today for a recommend for a recommendation mm-hmm. for our listeners? Well, it's not an acting book. So the book that I've actually given to several students um, is called The Ballerina Mindset, How to Protect Your Mental Health While Striving for Excellence. Um, Originally in my life, I thought I was going to be a dance critic. I adore dancers. I adore ballet. I adore the dance world. It kind of goes into having great appreciation for the athletic world. Um, But I think what Megan Fairchild has done with this book is really important for young artists because she talks about her successes, her failures, body image, um, and what she went through in terms of getting her mind acclimated for a career in the performing arts. Uh, It's a fast read, but I think it's, you know, we talk so much about mental health these days. And I love being able to recommend something that specifically deals with mental health from somebody who is dealing in a very difficult profession where one is constantly being evaluated, shall we say, for their physical toughness and their mental toughness. So I, um, that's my recommendation. That's a good one. I, I, it's not a book. I know I I wrote it down. I'm going to be ordering it on Amazon. uh, As soon as we finish here, you will love it. My, or my local bookstore. Your local bookstore. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Uh, It took me down a rabbit hole of reading several uh, contemporary dancers' autobiographies. Amazing. Because I was like, oh, here we go. Yes. You know, they so think good. I'm tough. Get in there with a ballet <laughs> mistress. <laughs> you know? This is amazing. It's almost better that it comes from uh, uh, a, a different discipline, a similar. It's there's, I, That's the my favorite part about this recommendation. Yes. Very exciting about that. Thanks. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. This is awesome. This is awesome. This is going to be one of of our most popular episodes. I I predict it right now. Well, next time we're all in the same city, drinks on me. Perfect. Perfect. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Haig. For more information, visit joshuahaigmusic.com.